Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Thursday, the 20th of May. I'm Tom Tilly, joined by Jan Fran. Hi, Jane. Hello, Tom. On today's briefing, an explainer on the deadly violence between Israel and the Palestinians. People live all their life in Gaza to save money, to buy a flat, to live. I mean, this is their dream. And then at one minute, the flat is collapsing. That's a doctor in Gaza. We'll hear more from him later. That is today's briefing. Before that, the big news of the day, actually starting with the latest from that conflict. Well, US President Joe Biden has told Israel that he expects a significant de-escalation in the conflict with Gaza by the end of today. He set the deadline in a call with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu as fighting spread in the region overnight. Yeah, Israel also confirmed it has launched artillery attacks on militants uh, based to its north in Lebanon in response to rocket attacks that had been fired from there. Yeah, after his call with Biden, Netanyahu said they'll continue their military operations, uh, which he said are surgical and targeted, aimed at minimising civilian casualties, but humanitarian observers, including Jan Egerland from the Norwegian Refugee Council, said that isn't the case. Prime Minister Netanyahu is not correct. This is killing children. There are five to six times as many dead Palestinian children as the total number of fatalities on the Israeli side. And just to give you the latest figures from the violence, 227 Palestinians and 12 Israelis have been killed so far. Um, Israeli media estimates that militants have fired around 4,000 rockets at Israel over the same period. Meanwhile, the Israeli army has conducted about 1,450 airstrikes on the Gaza Strip since May 10th. This is according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. Yeah, all eyes are on the US and we'll discuss this, I guess, in more detail later in our briefing. Yeah, it should be noted that the US has blocked three UN Security Council statements and resolutions that have condemned Israel and called for a ceasefire. They very clearly intend um, to push forward with their own diplomatic efforts. They say that that is the best way forward. Uh, Biden's spokesperson came out and basically said that having conversations behind the scenes is how they prefer to approach this conflict. Energy market experts and the opposition have criticised the federal government's decision to spend $600 million of taxpayer money building a gas power plant. This proposal isn't justified by the economics. It isn't justified by the engineering. That was Labor's Chris Bowen speaking there. Um, This was after the government announced plans to build the plant in the New South Wales Hunter Valley. It should be noted, though, that there are certain... Labor members, namely Joel Fitzgibbon, who is the member for the Hunter, who actually supports the plan, as does the Australian Workers' Union, because they say that it will create hundreds of jobs in the area. Yeah, and there's a New South Wales by-election coming up in that area as well. Um, Energy Minister Angus Taylor's been out defending the project. Yeah, he says that it'll replace ageing coal plants and it'll provide a backup for renewable power. Keep the lights on when it's really needed and put downward pressure on prices when it's really needed. That's the line we keep hearing. Indeed. Energy market experts, though, they've questioned the need for the project. Um, Energy Security Board Chair Kerry Schott had previously told The Guardian that private companies were not building the plant because it would, quote-unquote, not stack up. Yeah, and it doesn't seem to be the way a lot of our allies are going, like the UK. Around the world. Mm. Well, that's right. There was a report, actually, that was released by the International Energy Agency. This was just a few days ago. They actually urged Australia not to invest in coal, gas or oil anymore because they say that a pathway to net zero by 2050 will require our electricity grid 
to be at net zero by 2035, which is just around the corner. Doesn't look like we're heading in that direction. And Indian community leaders are calling on our government to do more to help Aussies stuck in India after news emerged that there's actually been a third Australian who's died of COVID in the country recently. Yeah, 51-year-old Sunil Khanna, who had actually been living in India for the past few years, was confirmed to have died last month while trying to arrange a passage for him and his parents out of the COVID-ravaged country. The Council of Indian Australians is calling on the government to work harder to bring Aussies stranded back. Uh, The PM confirmed there are now 11,000 people wanting to come home from India. Yeah, and the situation in India continues to deteriorate. There's a record number of deaths in the country, 4,500 people dying in just 24 hours, and now 25.5 million people have contracted the disease, second after the US. Yeah, well, there's a second repatriation flight coming back this weekend, so it'll be interesting to see how many people they can get on it and how that testing regime goes. Yep. The federal government's warned against any significant increases to the minimum wage. Yeah, a government employment conditions spokesperson told a Fair Work Commission panel yesterday that the commission should adopt, quote-unquote, a cautious approach to increasing minimum wage. Minimum wages are only at 1.5% growth anyway, so barely keeping up with inflation. Yeah, Um, it's even worse for public sector employees as well. So their wages and salaries grew by 0.4% last quarter. That is the lowest rate since the mid-90s. Yeah, so the government's strategy is to put all the focus on bringing down unemployment in the hope that that drives up wages. They don't want the Fair Work Commission intervening. That's right. Well, the unions have responded by saying that the government is ignoring the power that they have to lift wages and is more interested in staying on good terms with businesses. And there's been a wild ride in cryptocurrency markets in the last few days. Um, The price of Bitcoin plunged over 40%. Ah! He went back to the level that Elon Musk bought it for back in February when he bought $1.5 billion worth of it for Tesla. Wow. Uh, Yeah, so people are losing their minds. Lots of the other currencies have dropped massively as well, but then it has bounced. So this will change depending on when you're listening to this podcast, but it's, it's bounced quite a way back since then. So there's a lot of people who've been riding the high, pretending they're really astute investors, buying the dips, staying the course, who in the last 24 hours have had a very nervous ride. Well, I mean, that's me. I have Bitcoin. Did you know that? No. Yeah. I'm one of those astute investors that you're putting down there, Tom Tilly, in your tone. What price did you buy in it? Honestly, I can't remember. And I also don't know where the drive is. And I have not been following whether or not- When did you buy it? Um, I bought it last year. Oh. Yeah. You might want to find that drive. Well, I might want to find that drive. And I also might want to keep up to date with what it's doing, but I'm just not going to do that. So how, thanks for the update. <laughs> how, how much of it did you buy last year? Honestly. Like a thousand bucks, two thousand bucks? Maybe a bit more. Wow. Am I rich or poor? What? Tell me. You're, you could be rich. Okay. All right. In just a moment, we explain the conflict in Israel. Main roads are destroyed. I mean, all the main roads, junctions are destroyed. Big buildings with 14 floors. You know, when people live all their life in Gaza to save money, to buy a flat, to live. I mean, this is their dream. And then at one minute, the flat is collapsing, all the building, all what they have. I mean, when you lose, it's not losing the flat. You lose everything. The T-shirt is valuable. Your watch is valuable. Your papers are valuable. Your photos, I mean, your dish, your spoon, your fork. I mean, everything in one minute, it, it disappears. That was Dr. Mohammed Abu Mugaisib speaking to us from the Gaza Strip, which is being bombed by Israel. Um, he's working there with Médecins Sans Frontières. 
Yeah, and it gives a very real sense of what's happening there on this episode of The Briefing. We're going to explain in basic terms what's happening in Israel right now and how this current round of deadly violence started and how it might end. Anger and hate has spilled out onto the streets. Israel is hitting targets across Gaza with artillery. Missile defence systems lighting up the sky as they try to intercept incoming Hamas rockets. Both sides carrying out relentless strikes with no end in sight. Yeah, no doubt you've heard about the latest conflict that started a week and a half ago after a series of incidents in East Jerusalem throughout late April and early May. This is Professor Greg Barton from Deakin University. It came off the back of disputes in East Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah, half a dozen Palestinian families being evicted after being in homes in Sheikh Jarrah in this inner East Jerusalem neighbourhood near the old city walls since 1950. The traditional meeting for Ramadan, iftar fast-breaking and celebrations at Damascus Gate Amphitheatre was suddenly um, subject to barricades and police intervention. And then we had a really ugly confrontation in Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Haram sharif All of these things by themselves were not uh, unprecedented, but together it was a perfect storm We'll hear more from Greg Barton later on where this conflict will go from here. The tensions he was describing there in East Jerusalem is what led to this deadly violence that we're now witnessing in Gaza, which is actually on the other side of the country. Yeah, I think it is worth explaining a little bit of geography here. So right now in Israel, there are two separate Palestinian territories, right? There's the Gaza Strip, so that is a small strip of land on the west coast of Israel. It's run by Hamas. Um, This is an organisation that Australian authorities class as a terrorist organisation. There's also the West Bank. Now, this is a piece of land that runs from East Jerusalem out to the Jordanian border on the east. Yeah, so these two territories are on either sides of Israel. That's right. Just again, it's Gaza on the west side on the coast, the Mediterranean coast, and then over on the eastern side of the country from East Jerusalem out to the border is the West Bank. Yes, so it was clashes on the eastern side of the country, including in East Jerusalem, that's the one that Greg described there a moment ago, that led to the militants over in Gaza firing rockets at Israel a week and a half ago. So these rockets threaten the lives of hundreds of thousands of Israeli citizens that live in the cities that are near the Gazan border. So the citizens of those towns and cities are are often rushing their families in and out of bomb shelters once those rockets start. And that's why Israel then starts bombing Gaza. They say they're protecting their own citizens from that rocket fire. Yeah, it, it is worth noting, though, that the other way they protect their citizens is this iron dome. So it's this incredible piece of technology where they're able to intercept the rockets in the sky. And that is part of the reason why the Israeli death toll stays so low. So let's find out more about the destruction caused by the bombing in the Gaza Strip. Sophie McNeil's a former ABC Middle East correspondent. She's now a researcher for the Human Rights Watch organisation. She spent a lot of time reporting in Gaza and right now from here in Australia, she's closely watching what's happening there. Yeah, Sophie, thanks for being with us. What is the impact that the bombing is having in Gaza at the moment? Oh, it's just devastating because you've got two million civilians who are trapped inside Gaza and they've got nowhere to go. I mean, Gaza is the world's biggest prison. It's 42 k's long, it's 12 k's wide. And you can't get out of there. And so when you have an air force that is relentlessly using excessive force and hitting targets in the middle of civilian neighbourhoods, you have the deaths of many civilians. I mean, more than 200 Palestinians have already died. That includes more than 60 kids. There's been at least 12 
civilians killed in Israel, two children killed there. And what we see year after year with these wars in Gaza is that the death toll is always higher on the Palestinian side because of this real history of an Israeli excessive use of force and disproportionate use of force in what is one of the world's most densely populated areas. Israel says that it's targeting Hamas operatives. Of the deaths in Gaza, what proportion would be Hamas operatives and what proportion are civilians? It's a good question, Jan. And when you look at previous wars, say the 2014 war, which was the last big conflict between Hamas and the Israelis, the UN did an investigation and they looked at the death toll and um, the vast majority were civilians. So they determined that more than 2,000 Palestinian civilians died in that conflict and more than 550 kids. And you actually need to address the underlying cause of this issue, which is the continued denial of the collective and individual rights of the Palestinian people people, uh, you know, more than 50 years after they were occupied, they still don't have any basic human rights, millions of Palestinians. So obviously people in Gaza would be deeply angry at the actions of Israel, but what do they think about the actions of Hamas? I've covered Gaza for years, Tom. I've been in and out of there Mm. since 05, and I've done a lot of stories about, you know, how oppressive these guys are. You know, I I remember doing stories about them arresting young kids because they were wearing, you know, tight jeans and things like that. I mean, a lot of of civilians in Gaza do not like Hamas, right? Um, Mm. They haven't had elections since uh, 06. Um, They're incredibly oppressive. But the thing is, if Israel is airstriking their territory, these civilians do rally behind Hamas. It strengthens them. So that's Mm. why it's not the right approach. So, you know, it's the civilians that we need to really prioritise here. And there's two million of them trapped inside Gaza with no escape. Well, the tensions don't look like they're dissipating anytime soon. I mean, what should the international community be doing here? Like, what is Human Rights Watch calling for? We're saying this is a crime against humanity. We have the evidence of decades of abuses to show that what you're doing is you're systematically privileging one race over the other. So the Israeli government policy now for decades has privileged Jewish Israelis over Palestinians and they have a policy to maintain that domination. How can this continue in 2021? This systemic discrimination against a people. So we think that that underlying cause needs to be addressed and governments need to review their military sales to Israel, they need to review all trade agreements and and tell the Israeli government you can't keep treating millions of Palestinians like a second-class citizen. That was Sophie McNeil from Human Rights Watch and she's speaking about the latest conflict, but she also talked about the previous conflicts which have some similarities to this one. Yeah, that's right. Well, there was a conflict in 2014 in the same area that saw more than 2,000 Palestinians killed, over half of them civilians, after Israel launched a military operation and this followed the kidnapping and murder of three Israeli teenagers. Also 67 Israeli soldiers and six civilians lost their lives in that particular conflict. Yeah, there was a big one before that as well in 2008-2009 where more than 1,000 Palestinians and 13 Israelis were killed in a similar military offensive launched by Israel in response to rocket fire from Hamas. So a bit of a pattern there. Indeed, yeah. This is an an ongoing, protracted and and violent conflict. And we heard Sophie there talk about the occupation, which has been going on for decades. So let's get a little bit more insight here from Greg Barton on where this might go from here. Greg is a professor in global Islamic studies at Deakin University. 
Greg, how closely does this current conflict follow the patterns of those previous deadly outbreaks between these two parties? Look, it certainly follows a familiar pattern of, of Hamas firing fairly crude rockets out of Gaza, having them shot down for provoking a response from the Israeli Defence Force. There's a few new elements here, though. One is we're seeing Hamas trying to deal itself into somehow being a champion of um, Arab Israelis and Palestinians in Jerusalem and the West Bank, um, so reaching beyond the Gaza Strip to go into the heart of, of action. It's come off the back of cancelled Palestinian elections, so Hamas is trying to take advantage of that to um, up its game. The scale of this initial round of violence uh, accelerated very quickly. The, the number of rockets launched from uh, Gaza and the ferocity of the uh, Israeli Defence Force, the number of lives lost in Gaza, all of this um, makes it one of the more intense rounds of violence that we've seen, though that pattern is familiar. Um, there are these new elements, and they're worrying new elements because they suggest that something has changed in Israel, that um, there's a sort of a level of anger that's working in ways that, that hadn't been seen before. Uh, there's been a sense of complacency on the part of the Netanyahu government that whenever they have problems, as they say, they can mow the grass. When the grass gets too long, they'll just deal with the problem and then that'll, that'll set it right for a while. That isn't necessarily going to work this time. Well, if, as you say, there's a failure on the Israeli side and on the Palestinian side politically, who steps in here? Is there a role for the international community? And if so, what should they be doing? There certainly is a role for the international community, but the key really is America. America has the greatest leverage of any external player here. America has, in the past, obviously tried many times, certainly under democratic presidents, to try and advance the peace process. This seems to be the one thing that uh, new President Joe Biden didn't want to try and do, probably because of fear of failure. But also, uh, America's home to seven and a half million Jews, the vast majority of which vote Democrats. Uh, they care and love for Israel very strongly, but they're also um, educated and culturally inclined to value democracy and justice, and increasingly those two things are at odds. And that means that America does potentially have an opportunity to play a master role uh, when the Biden administration is reluctantly forced to, to do that. So, Greg, which pieces of this puzzle do you think would need to be moved for a circuit breaker on this repetitive cycle of violence? Clearly, you've got expansion of Jewish settlements in the West Bank, which is a major tension point. You've got Israeli security forces flexing their muscles in East Jerusalem. There's um, Hamas and the role it's playing, it's rocket fire. There's the Israeli control of the Gaza Strip and what goes in and out of there, which creates uh, a massive tension, but they say keeps them safe from Hamas building up more weapons and ammunition. So which of these key dynamics would or should shift in order to stop this cycle of violence? I think in the medium term, um, there needs to be a way out of just accepting that Hamas has control of the Gaza Strip and that it can rule as a brutal authoritarian power and that Israel will just hem things in and control things from the air and, and, and on the land and sea borders. That's just an awful recipe for suffering for the people trapped in that Gaza Strip, two million people in a, one of the most congested uh, strips of urban settlement anywhere in the world, which is at breaking point now in terms of clean water and power and hospitals and, and clinics being uh, destroyed. 
that there needs to be some way of doing things differently in Gaza. I, I, can, I can recognize that very clearly, how we get to doing that and how it's executed. I, I really frankly don't know. It's very hard. I can understand exactly why Joe Biden has been reluctant to wade into this because there's nothing easy here. Greg Barton there, kind of explaining, Jan, why so many people are focusing on the words of Joe Biden, the US president mm-hmm. at the moment, reading into his language about how much he's sort of calling on Israel to stop the bombing of Gaza. Yeah, he does seem to be the number one power broker in this situation. And perhaps a stopgap, he might be able to end the hostilities in this particular conflict. What's to say it won't happen again as it did in 2014, as it did in 2009. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we identify what could be a key failure in the fight to stop domestic violence. Listener.